Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? Listen to Sound Opinions, and this week we'll be revisiting our interview with Israeli musician Tamar Afek. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, another band from an area deeply affected by war, Trupa Trupa of Poland. Greg, you first told me about Trupa Trupa when you saw them at South by Southwest in 2018, and you couldn't stop raving. They blew you away, yeah, right? Yeah, it was impressive. It's very difficult to stand out at South by Southwest, and I went sort of, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to check it out because the the album sounded interesting. I would say the live performance was twice as good mm. as, as the album. Um, there, they, they set an atmosphere that was very powerful. It reminded me a lot of um, a, a lot of bands from Eastern Europe that I had been familiar with. You know, the pool noshes and the plastic yes. people of the universe aspect. Uh, you know, very velvets uh, influenced. You know, mothers of invention influences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a darkness there, and and also what struck me was the uh, minimalist poetry that the singer uh, Zhegosh Kwiatkowski was putting over the top of these very layered uh, and droning kind of backdrops. So it was, it was a, it was a really powerful and moving experience because they were talking about their uh, experience with war. Poland has been like sort of a punching bag in Europe for decades, you know, centuries, for centuries, centuries, going beyond that, and and you can hear it in their music. Their music sounds haunted. Uh, just as Poland, I think, is a very haunted country, and I say this mm. as the uh, the son of you know uh, Polish uh, Polish people who have been living in that country for you know generations in my family. Uh, we actually had an event scheduled with Trupa Trupa for June of 2020, uh, but uh, obviously that didn't happen because of the pandemic. And after two years uh, without touring, now Trupa Trupa is coming back to the states. So we're glad we can finally interview the band singer Jagosz Kwiatkowski. And we were able to do that just a couple of weeks ago. We are here with Zhegosh Kwiatowski. I, we are so pleased to have you here. Uh, you know, I'm a Zhegosh too, Zhegosh. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I but love I, it when he speaks but I come Polish. From Polish <laughs> I come from Polish roots. And uh, as a result, I am very familiar with uh, the pronunciation. Well, I think I'm familiar with the pronunciation of your name. But welcome to the show. It's great to have the lead singer with Trupa Trupa with us. Nice to hear you, nice to see you, because we see each other, and yeah, the pronunciation of Grzegorz was perfect, <laughs> and to be fully, truly, for me, you were always Greg, in the way that I didn't translate it into Polish Grzegorz, but you're totally right, this is a Polish name. Well, I have to tell you, though, one one anecdote here, my mother, you know, spoke fluent Polish, obviously, she grew up in Poland, and came over after the war, and I was always Greg, you know, that I remember, but when I was in trouble, it was Grzegorz. <laughs> Jagosh, <laughs> you are in big trouble right now, young man. You know, it's like I'm feeling left out because I'm one quarter Polish. Kopaczynski, oh, Duma so, Spach. <laughs> That's all I know. So this is very big surprise for me. So it seems like we are uh, in Polish radio, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. So Jagosh, I'm going to call you Greg from now on. Okay. So for today, <laughs> for today's purposes, but hey. I mean, Trupa Trupa has been making music for a decade now. I think the first record came out in 2015, but you were a band prior to that. 
What was your initial impetus to start the band? Why did you want to form a rock band? Because you're obviously a, you're a published poet as well. Why a rock band? What was the impetus there? I think that the answer will be a simple one, but but we really... I loved music and I still love music and, and my friends love music. And when you are very young, you've got this tones of, of energy and kind of a narcissistic, egoistic youth power. But on the other hand, uh, when I was a little boy, I was going to the musical school and I was playing on some instruments. So for me, it was just a natural way to make it. On the other hand, you are right that I, I'm also a writer uh, and a poet. So maybe I shouldn't do these two things. Uh, but no, I think that my poetry and, and music are, are connected to each other. And, you know, I, I think that we didn't have any program. I think that we didn't have any program and we didn't, we didn't start to play music for example, to make some message to the world. I, I think that, that year after year, we built something like a program, uh, like a democratic program. But I think that the first thing and the last thing is always the same. So this is the love to the music and love of playing music. And you saw Trupa Trupa concerts, so, so you know that, that for us, playing gigs is really, really important, maybe more important than, than recording albums in the studio. Well, and, and the music has always, to my mind, always been very representative of, there's a particular sensibility that Eastern Europeans have, and it's in their literature, it's in their painting, it's in their music. Uh, you know, I grew up listening to Paderewski, you know, what my, my parents were introducing me to Polish classical avant-garde music, and I, I was just like, wow, this is really radical. And then when I hear what Radiohead's doing, I go, oh, I know where they got that from. You know, that <laughs> symphonic you know, element. There's a darkness to a lot of it. Um, and I think you... Trupa Trupa is very much in that tradition of painting this picture of the world in a very realistic way and at the same time beautiful and abstract, but it, that, that has always been there. Well, the name, Corpse Corpse, right? right? If we translate it? Yeah, I think that even if we didn't think about that, we were all, always influenced by the Central European you know, air and, and atmosphere. And I think that... The, 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 Trupa Trupa is, is, is in some way a twitch in the musical system. I think the good thing about us is that we don't try to be as cool or as professional or as Western indie bands, that we are doing our own thing, even if we don't realize about it. And you are right that it's dark and, and, and the mood is really in some way pessimistic and dark. And in some way, uh, I thought that maybe... It's my obsession in the way that, that I, I, I've got an obsession on, on death and on suffering because of my uh, family roots, because my grandfather was a prisoner of concentration camps and I was very close to him. But the point is that this very, very tragic war 
on Ukraine showed me that this is a reality. You know, it wasn't my imagination, unfortunately. The world is full, full of suffering. Also, before the Ukraine war, it was full of suffering. But now we can see, you know, everyone can see it by the zoom of camera. And in some very tragic way, I think that this music resonates, especially in this kind of war times. We didn't want to do it. It wasn't our profile. It wasn't our program. We were just doing it in a natural, organical way. But, but suddenly the reality seems more dark than music of Trupa Trupa. Did you consider yourselves uh, lucky? You're, you're in the States now. We're talking to you. You guys are on tour supporting this excellent album, the fourth studio record, B-flat A. As if the global pandemic wasn't enough of a challenge to a, a band crossing the ocean to come on tour. Was there worry about, uh, with all the turmoil in Eastern Europe and the war in Ukraine, that you'd even be able to get here? You know, everything was possible and everything is still possible in this I'm talking about tragic scenarios. So, so we are analyzing every mad, uh, brutal step from Vladimir Putin. You know, we still don't know what will happen in next one week or two weeks. Yeah. You know, two years ago we we planned to uh, go to USA in 2019, and then the pandemic started, so we canceled it. Then we thought that we are very close to the end of pandemic era. And then suddenly the war in Ukraine started. Yeah. We are lucky to unlucky stuff. But it builds in some way our lives and our art and our music. So in some very tragic way, we used to it as a, as a people who lives in uh, Central Europe. Because, you know, history of Poland, the biggest genocide took place in uh, during the Second World War, and we are all from the city of Gdańsk, uh, where Second World War started. Yeah. Uh, so um, this is all very strange and very weird, but the point is that we, we are playing, we are talking. I think that we try to to give some message. I wouldn't say that we, we, we are trying to make this world even more sad. I think that we are, by our music or by my poetry, we are trying to make some wake-up effect, wake up in a moral way, you know, that, that people could wake up from this uh, very comfortable dream when you don't think about the others, you know, uh, who are suffering. So, so yes, our music were, was also very close to history. My poetry was also very close to history. And for many years, to be fully truly, I heard from many, many people that this is a bad mix, that we shouldn't mix history and art because... It can be just very flat, and it's not the era of wars. The wars are gone. <laughs> We're living in the very peaceful mm. times, and, and now it's time to make uh, different stuff. So unfortunately, these people were wrong, but unfortunately, because because of, for sure, you know, the war is the big tragedy, and, and everyone is losing. Coming up, we're going to hear more from Trupa Trupa. Then we'll talk with Israeli musician Tamar Afek. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we are back. We are talking with the lead singer of Trupa Trupa, uh, Jagosh, right? That, that's what your mom called you when she was <laughs> Jagosh, married. Jagosh, yes. Jagosh. <laughs> Let's get back to the conversation. Well, you mentioned your, your family history, you know, going back to the Holocaust and the concentration camps. I believe your grandfather was in a concentration camp, right? And his sister as well. Mm, you have a personal history with that, as just about anybody who was in Europe during World War II does. But you talk about this idea of denialism. This is something that you've mentioned before. And you yourself 
bore witness to some of that. You made a, a horrific discovery in 2015, right, of evidence of the Holocaust during a period when there were groups out in public trying to deny that it ever happened. Tell us well, what you found, uh, Jagosh. This is a horrible story, and it's so amazing, in a bad way of being amazing, that, that it almost sounds surreal. In 2015, I, me and my friend from a band, we found a near-death fence of the Museum of Concentration Camp Stutthof, 30 kilometers from Gdańsk. We found thousands of uh, shoes in the forest, thousands and thousands. So we started to dig in the ground, and there were more of them, more of them. In 1945, when Red Army liberated this concentration camp, they counted these uh, shoes. It was half of a million pairs of shoes from all concentration camps in Europe because Stuttgart concentration camp was kind of a reparation center of leather and shoes. So there was a mountain of shoes of victims. And in 1967, the museum was established in this place. The director of the museum took just a part of the shoes, kind of, I don't know, 20,000 or 50,000, and almost half of a million pairs of shoes, he just didn't protect it, and they were like a trash in the in the forest. They were lying there for decades. So we went to that new manager of this museum, and we asked him to take care of these artifacts of the genocide, and he told us that this is a trash stuff, that he will not do anything. So we gave him six months to make some action. He didn't do it. So we called Polish uh, media and media outlets. They made some uh, alert situation uh, all around, but still the, the boss of museum didn't do anything. So then the Guardian came and uh, CBC came and, and a lot of world media started to talk about it. After many, many years of battle, because it was really a battle, battle for a memory of these artifacts of the genocide, the manager of the museum took this mountain of shoes, took this almost half million of pairs of shoes, and he took them on the territory of museum and he buried them. It was, I'm so sorry for this language, but it was so stupid, it was so awful, so bad that now it's invisible. You know, he took this big memory of these victims and he just buried them. And in some way, this is a metaphor of uh, memory, you know. He just, in some uh, symbolical way, said to us, shut up, you know, this is the history, this is the past, now it's gone. And in my opinion, the history is never-ending. The war on Ukraine is just another very tragic example of uh, ability of human beings to kill each other. These are very strange uh, accidents uh, from the life of very strange band through Patrick. <laughs> Well, and, and you talk about, I know you've talked about these, these ghosts that, you know, you, when you listen to your music, it, it sounds haunted. darkness but you talked about this idea of the ghosts are, are still with with you and you're channeling them through that music i totally believe in that you know i think that artists especially artists are kind of a sponge you know that, that we are like radars or like you know that we are very open on on, on uh on atmosphere and uh 
on voices, also voices of dead people. And but by the way, because this is American influence, but that's why I, I love so much uh, your great American writer, Edgar Lee Masters, who was living in Chicago. His Spoon River anthology, the book about ghosts, the book about American ghosts, for me, this book was a key to the landscape of a genocide uh, in the Central Europe. So I took his methodology, I took his idea to talk about the history, but of course, when I'm talking about history and when we're talking about history, we are also talking about our reality, unfortunately. If you go back to the earliest uh, psychedelic literature, you know, there was always this uh, consciousness of, you know, uh, you can soar angelic heights or you can fathom the depths of hell. I think it was Aldous Huxley that said that, you know, and there, yeah. there is this dark side, this light. But I know what you were saying about Eastern European uh, strangeness. I mean, in my limited experience being a road manager on tour in the, the late 80s, you know, I mean, you, you're like at the SO uh, getting gas on, on the Autostrasse or the Autobahn and you look around out back and there's this relic of a 13th century castle. <laughs> you know, it's like weird, psychedelic. Yeah. When Greg saw us in 2018 on South by Southwest, he, he compared us to plastic people of the universe, right? Yeah. Uh, of this very, very psychedelic Central Europe great thing. So, so yeah, I, I think there is something, but of course the point of psychedelic music and the point of this kind of music it lays in the, in the Western roots. Of course, of course, uh, you know, for example, Sid Barrett. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, Sid, Sid Barrett is one of the most important figures in the psychedelic world, and his solo albums, you know, uh, broken albums in some way, they are for me everything. You know, it's interesting too that you know a lot of the things we've been talking about, Greg. Um, the new album B Flat A was made obviously before this latest horrible tragedy that's happening in Ukraine now. But those issues that you were talking about, denialism, etc., the songs you know, uniform, twitch. It's almost like it could have been written now, describing what's happening right in front of our very eyes every night on the newscasts. so this this doesn't go away. Something that happened in 1945 might as well be happening in 2022 as well. It seems to be this constant cycle. And that, I think the band has always sort of been in that mode where, you know, w- watch out, this could happen again. And we're sort of here, as you said earlier, you're sh- sending up a, a wake-up call a little bit to the world. <laughs> and here we are again, right? Yeah, this is, this is, this is something which is very very unexpected even if i was in some way sending warnings of course it happened in syria of course it happened in chechenia of course we shouldn't forget about about this these wars uh, but but this is unexpected very very big tragedy but i want, wanted to say something about one more time about uh, american culture and about usa because the Ukraine till now uh, was saved by by United States of America. One more time, as in, uh, in the Second World War example, United States came with a big, big support and help for Europe. And it's not obvious thing, you know. When I heard uh, Joe Biden's speech in in Warsaw, 
I think it, it was very open-hearted and open-minded. And well, it's that's it's nice of you to say, and we'll pass it along to Joe. Yeah. We'll but let Joe I, know that you're... You know what I yeah. was touched by? I am touched by the fact that the population of Warsaw has doubled with uh, accepting Ukrainian refugees and with the Polish people welcoming these children and these wives into their homes for who knows how long. Maybe they'll never be able to go back to Ukraine. I think you are right. I was also very amazed by the reaction of Polish society. And I'm very, very proud of his reaction. Well, I think also the role of music had something here as well, because I always think that with Trupa Trupa, there was a bigger sense of why we are doing this than... I, we just want to sell records and, and, and play shows. We're just a band. It, it seemed like it always meant something more. There was something more of a responsibility. I don't know. I don't want to put words in your head or mouth about what you feel the role of music is in all this, but it seems like you always saw music as having a bigger role than just being entertainment. Yeah, yeah. I don't have anything against uh, music, which is only entertainment. But yeah, my idea of musical world is... is for me, Fugazi, you know, artists who are great in ethical way and in artistic way, this is ideal situation. And we live in, in, in the times which are very revolutionary when we think about ethics in many aspects, in Black Lives Matters aspects, in Me Too aspect, in this war on Ukraine aspect, that we will not tolerate the evil in such big way as we did in the past. I think, I think something changed in a, in a very good direction. Mm-hmm. We have been thrilled to talk to uh, the singer with Trupa Trupa, Zagosz Kwiatkowski, and uh, talking about this marvelous band in this incredible time that we're living in, tragic, and yet a band with a B-flat A, uh, a record that very much addresses uh, the times we live in. Uh, Thank you, Zagosz, for being our guest. Uh, it, It was an honor. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for our conversation with Trupa Trupa. Do you have thoughts on the man? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, or tell other listeners about it in our Facebook group. Talk to me, don't blow my cover, let it all out. You're not my lover, you know you want to cry. Never said never, do you want to see me die? It's just bad weather. Yeah, that is a little bit of the song Show Me Your Pretty Side by Israeli singer, songwriter, and guitarist Tamar Afek. We first aired this interview last September, and later that year, Tamar's album All Bets Are Off appeared on both of our year-end top ten lists. And uh, while the political conflicts around her definitely influence her art, Tamar's a technician and a music history devotee, deeply committed to musical experimentation. So we began our conversation with Tamar by asking her about how she fell in love with underground rock and bands like Fugazi, Shellac, and more. I think I was drawn to what I called uh, the, <laughs> the underground rock. I was drawn to it because of the aspect of the sound. I felt like I discovered the world of sound. It began with a guitar. You know, there are so many kinds of distortion, right? Like the distortion of Pantera isn't like the distortion of the Stooges and isn't like the distortion of Led Zeppelin. And I was very excited by the diversity in the guitar sound. Mm -hmm. And at a a later point, I began being fascinated with um, the whole recording process 
of uh, all the instruments, especially the drums, which is um, part of what led me to record the album in Depton Records. We can talk a, a little bit later why I chose to record it there. Yeah. But coming from the classical world, where sound wasn't really a topic, I mean, the sound was clean, you know, either mm-hmm. whether it was playing on the piano or, or singing in a choir with, with different orchestras. No one ever talked about the sound besides the sound that uh, you produce yourself, right, as a singer or dynamics in instruments if you play the cello. But we've never been talked to about the recording process. And I think that's one of the main things that got me fascinated with the ro- world of the underground rock. You mentioned Daptone Records, you know, and Daptone, of course, is a, a center for these wonderful old school, soulful R&B sounds. What made you want to record there? I remember when I was searching for uh, places to record that I read an interview with um, the technician and uh, the co-founder of the label, um, Gabriel Roth, I think. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, recorded um, the Black to Black sessions and he talked about how he prefers... Uh, taking two weeks to find the right place to put a microphone on the drums as opposed to putting two dozen microphones on the drums and making it sound like like one thing right because like th- one of the m- the main things you confront with while mixing is that you try to glue all the microphone of th- on the drums together to sound like one unit right and I love that I love the fact that he took that, that that's what he said and I felt like I In the philosophical way, I felt I, it connected to me in the sense that I preferred touring with my band uh, for two months. Uh, we, we toured Europe for one month and then the States for one month. And I preferred touring for two uh, months to find, find our sweet spot as a band and record one take rather than mm-hmm. a dozen of takes. So yeah. I, I really loved that and connected with that. And yeah. Um, That was one of the main reasons uh, I chose it. It's a studio that is more familiar with the soul and funk uh, music, which I also like the idea of recording uh, more rock. Um, mm-hmm. But the way they record is more old-fashioned, and the analog equipment uh, always has this sense of realism that glues the performance together. Yeah, a certain warmth, and of course, that's how the orchestra's recorded. Everybody's playing at once, there's one take, and you better know how to mic that orchestra. Exactly. So maybe singing with a choir and an orchestra did influence me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unconsciously. Do you still feel like you bring some of your classical training into what you're doing now, or do you see it as a completely different world? Because you, you know, you're talking about the way sound changed for you when you heard a distorted guitar. But are you bringing any of those uh, classical training lessons into into your your songwriting and your in your playing uh, currently? That's a good question. You know, many times when people talk about genres, they talk about sound. But I believe that um, a genre also has an approach, an attitude. And sometimes there are a lot of similarities between genres. For example, you know, when, 
people heard jazz band and they wanted to to give it a compliment it says it has the jazz right and when you see a rock and roll show you say yeah this is rock and roll and there is a certain attitude that um, that connects between all these genres and one of the attitudes in the classical music is there is a lot of discipline uh, when you learn a part you repeat it again and again and there are different kinds of techniques to do that so I feel I bring with me the discipline of the classical music training I, I got into my rehearsals with my band but also I feel like if you take a song like Russian winter for example and you hear the baseline you hear a, a distorted baseline and someone that isn't used to hearing this kind of music and comes from the classical world will might hear it and say ah this is I don't like this this is like too noisy or this is this is, has a lot of distortion but if I have a cello play that part it will sound very classical I mean I still believe my arrangements are still pretty classically influenced and also during the covet 19 pandemic I found myself starting doing these acoustic versions uh, for our songs from the album in the form of chamber music uh, I did it with uh, an oboe player and a cello player and um, we did a session for NPR and I did some sessions for different uh, magazines in Europe and it's also something that I'm very excited about and it's fun to do that's cool well you mentioned Russian winter that song is very ambitious uh, I, I think the mm. mix of uh, sounds and genres you're really it really isn't a genre. It's uh, it's multiple genres in that song. So when you're writing, you're obviously not thinking about, hey, is this a rock song? Is this is this going to be more classically influenced? It's all it's all kind of in a big blender. It sounds like. Yes, I mean, I started when I when I got into the rock and roll world. I started as um, what interested me the most was the guitar. I was uh, all about being a guitar hero and um, <laughs> dealing. <laughs> after, and dealing after playing a piano mm -hmm. uh, when you were a youth. Yes. The first instrument. Yes. So guitar, you discover at 18, you're going to be a guitar hero. Yes. And I mean, explore the concept of, uh, of the guitar hero. And, you know, my teachers were, you know, mostly uh, John Frusciante, Kurt Cobain. Later, later, I got into West Montgomery and B.B. King and all that. But at the beginning, it was like more about what the hell was Jimi Hendrix doing? Yeah. I was like, really, <laughs> I was like, I spent a good time just like, I can't, like, no way, no way. I just, I, I have nothing to do with this. I can see it, but it won't help. And then I got my first uh, JMP Super Bass Marshall. Now, you don't live in Israel, <laughs> but, getting, but getting a Super Amp uh, Marshall from the 70s in Israel, you know, it's, it's declaring war. <laughs> and um, it took me a lot of time to get it, but then I got it. And once I got my uh, Wawa pedal, I started getting a grasp of what Jimi Hendrix was doing. It's funny because Jimi Hendrix is, uh, you know, we, we still didn't, didn't talk about it, but, you know, it was important for me to, um, to improvise on this album because I felt like improvisation was something that was missing a little bit from the rock albums that I listened to at the time I made, my, I made the album. And... Um, I was reading a lot about how jazz records were made and 
I was trying to, you know, get some techniques for improvisation. And then I remember I saw um, there was a show online on YouTube, the Jimi Hendrix Experience in uh, Sweden, live in Sweden in 1969. And he starts the show by saying... Uh, We're going to play nothing but oldies but baddies tonight. Because we haven't, you know, we haven't played together in about six weeks. So we're just going to jam and see what happens tonight. Hope you don't mind. You know, we're just going to mess around this jam and see what happens. And then they play and it just sounds amazing. And it was like, I came back to Jimi Hendrix, I think, as a producer rather than a guitar player that tried to uh, understand what he was doing. I was starting also to appreciate him as a producer in the, in the sense that, you know, he, they, they basically improvised a lot of the show. And um, it also gave me this big drive of daring to improvise rock and roll on stage. When we come back, we will hear more about tomorrow's songwriting process and what the rock scene is like in Israel. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're talking with the multi-talented artist Tamar Afek about her album, All Bets Are Off. I wanted to know if her intricate genre-blending instrumentals were part of the song construction from the start or if she adds them later. At the beginning when I was exploring the Guitar Hero, so I was just about, you know, playing the guitar parts I have and, and build a song around it, you know, who cares, as long as I yeah, play yeah. guitar really loud and good. But uh, then I started changing my approach completely and, and, and looking at it from a producer uh, point of view. And in that uh, process, I decided I'm writing all the songs on an acoustic guitar and the um, arrangements and the production will come later. And... Basically, the way I worked on this album was, you know, I, I, I used to tell this um, uh, when I talk about my production technique, you know, many times, many times, you know, musicians have this thing, which is not bad, but it's like, it's all about don't ruin the song, you know, like the song is so important and you don't <laughs> have to, you, you can't ruin the song. And I, I can't, you know, I came from Israel. I, I wanted to tour the States. I wanted to tour Europe for a girl from Israel. You know, who cares about the songs? Who cares about anything? I just want to tour, you know, the songs are an excuse for touring. So in the same way, I felt like the songs are an excuse to make music. I want to make music. I want to have like this really interesting bass line going in the background. And I wrote one, an interesting drum part in the background. And I, I want, and that's the most important thing. So the thing I would tell my musicians is, imagine the song is like a car, and um, now let's mm. crash this car in, into a tree, <laughs> <laughs> and there's an accident. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, well, you know, I still want people to recognize that this was a car, you know, maybe I wanted them to, rec to think this was a Maserati, right? But I still want them to um, crash the car into a tree. And this process involves different things. It brings special things from out of the musicians. I encourage them to do things that uh, normally other people wouldn't encourage them to do. But there are also, you know, some guidelines. I think Russian Winter and Crossbow, the basic idea was that I felt that I wanted to have this raw kind of sound and feeling many times I feel when I hear new music it's like I feel I'm getting this unconscious message of like 
hear me, this is very good, this is very well produced, this is shiny kind of message. And I wanted to give a different message. You know how when you're really hungry for, for a very, very long time, you haven't eaten anything and you don't have any food and then suddenly you, you have a tomato and um, there's no oil, there's no uh, lemon, there's no salt, there's no pepper, but you're really, really hungry. So you're eating the tomato and it's like the most amazing thing you ever tasted because suddenly you can appreciate like the raw tomato without anything. And this is the, mes the, the message I wanted to, to give. I wanted to give the message, I know how hungry you are. Um, here are the bass and here's the bass and here are the <laughs> drums. I know you haven't heard them like this naked for a while you know here you can you can meet them again you know i know it's been a while um. <laughs> Like, you know, I want to hear drums for like one minute, two minutes, just drums. I mean, if I would go to a show, I would just want to hear drums for a little bit. You know, I don't need everyone together all the time. I, something in the in the raw feeling, you know, today, especially in the DAW generation, I feel it. It's That's what's ex that's the thing that excited me the most. Right. Mm hmm. Well, I, you know, uh, I don't want you to think tomorrow that we are obsessed with Russian winter uh, because I love every track on the album. I, I, the first one I played was uh, Show Me Your Pretty Side. But Russian winter, right? You, you're talking so much about sound and um, musicianship and arrangements. I'm struck also by the lyrics, and I, I haven't seen many reviews giving you your credit there. Using, uh, you know, General Winter, as they call in Russia, right? You know, wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, the Russian army that defeated Hitler or Napoleon. It was the minus 30 degree temperatures in the winter. First, you first say, time uh, someone asks me, uh, someone hits the, the point, yeah. Yeah, well, you, you, you sing in that song, I'll fight the Russian winter straight into your heart. You say you can't see blood, but I, I plan to miss that part. I'll fight the Russian winter straight into your heart. You say you can't see blood, but I plan to miss that part. And um, I was wondering, you know, how that came to you. I love that. Yeah, it came to me while I was reading about uh, this book about... Um, <laughs> about uh, World War, uh, it, it's, the, the book is called, uh, I, I'm not sure how you say it in, uh, in English, it talks about like the crucial uh, mistakes that have been done in different wars in history. Mm. And the turning point, like uh, if, if Hitler wouldn't have uh, went to Russia, what would have happened, you know? Um, yeah. and, and he explores it, but in different situations in Japan and all over the world. Um, and yeah, during history, there was a um, there was there were a compendium of high seas uh, military disasters, um, uh, which were a result of you know in insufficient planning and miscalculation and um, meaningless ideologies. So I I use this phrase more like as a metaphor for wrong decisions and choices uh, one makes in life and. I think the way to avoid these mistakes um, is by each side deciding about his or her red lines um, in every relationship on every level, whether it's social or political or personal. Yeah. 
Yeah, the red lines. Well, you know, that leads into a question we, we have to ask you as a uh, smart, uh, passionate artist in, in Tel Aviv talking to us. It's been a hell of a couple of months uh, and, and violence on every side. How, how do you create art in the midst of, of that uh, bombs raining down? Yes, it's, uh, it's not easy. Um, it's definitely been uh, some challenging uh, uh, months. But, I mean, I mean, that's, you know, I chose to be a musician. And uh, when I do music, you know, uh, the world outside doesn't exist. I'm just, uh, you know, in my space. And, um, of course, songs like Russian Winter and, and Crossbow, you know, these are songs that are associated with destructive behavior and um and i do feel like my songs you know the target is to put an end to all tragic uh statistics of violence between human beings so i feel like it definitely influences my songs and my music but on a day-to-day basis i'm just me at my studio you know doing my thing beautiful confusion Delicate plants Beautiful solution Nothing to add When Israel is functioning and, and open and there is not violence, do you see both uh, your fellow Israelis and uh, people of Arab descent coming to shows? Is the underground uh, segregated in any way or do people come together through music? Not enough. There are some events, you know, personally I live in Jaffa, which is a place where Arabs and Israelis live together uh, in coexistence. You know, when the bombs uh, were happening, I was... I was, uh, you know, we go to the staircase. I, I, I sat with my Arab neighbors and we both together talked about, you know, how unfortunate uh, the situation is because of the extremists of both sides. Yeah. And um, yes, definitely there's, uh, it's not integrated enough. There are parties and events that try to, you know, that focus on, on the integration, but it's, uh, it's difficult. It's hard. I'm, you know, curious because you, uh, you know, you come from a country that isn't necessarily widely known for producing great rock bands. Although I will have to say that I, I, I was a huge fan of Monotonics. Uh, that I don't know if they were, you happen to see them at all. But the one thing that struck me about I Monotonics, ju- I just saw the singer yesterday. He's my neighbor here in. Jeff- Is that right? <laughs> That's great. My body And the thing I remember about them, tomorrow was that they were so, um, they set up right in the middle of the audience. It's like we're all in this together. We're not separating ourselves from the audience in any way. We're one of you. We're making a big noise here in the middle of this. And everybody was celebrating. I mean, here it is, the most jaded music conference in the world, right? All these people who had seen everything. And they're jumping up and down for monotonics because they were so amazing at the South by Southwest Music Festival in, in Austin, uh, you know, more than a decade. I think the band broke up like 10 years ago, right? Or something like that. But they were amazing. 
And I wonder, you know, are, are there more shows, more bands like that in Israel? I mean, is that kind of the vibe when you go to a show? Or how are people responding to the music in a live setting there? You know, is it, is it like that all the time? Well, Monotonics is definitely a special band. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and they definitely, it's a band that also influenced me. Um, the, their guitar player, Jonathan Gatt, has a solo project now. Uh, I also have an EP that he produced, uh, so we are uh, good friends. Um, Monotonics was definitely one of a kind. There are, I would say there are a couple of Israeli bands that have uh, the same vibe, but it's still not exactly the same. But I do feel that Monotonics um, brought something very Israeli. I mean, you know, on one hand, we in Israel, you know, we didn't get a chance to experience a lot of great live bands. Um, you know, our, we, we mostly saw, saw it on YouTube or, you know, uh, someone went to the States and, and came back with stories. Uh, we didn't experience the way people in the States experience it. And I think Monotonics brought something. On one hand, they were very influenced by... by a lot of American bands. Uh, I remember, do you know Federation X? Mm. Federation yeah. X were in Israel. I remember they, they, like we were all influenced by Federation X. You know, they came with, they were so loud and heavy and Monotonics were also, saw them and, and, and were really influenced by them. And of course, you know, there are obviously, we were listening at the time of Monotonics, you know, we were really into all these bands like, um, Polvo and Jesus Lizard and 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 Chillac and and um, obviously you know Iggy Pop influenced monotonics and uh, there, there there are many Americans that uh, you you could sense the influence but they still brought something very Israeli you know in Hebrew we say chutzpah you know this uh, <laughs> yeah. they they brought this chutzpah like uh, to, to the to the rock and roll and I think uh, that's part of uh, what what people enjoyed. That's an interesting perspective, Greg, right? Because mm -hmm. what I've always said about Jesus Lizard, who you just name dropped tomorrow, is uh, to only know the records or even the YouTube uh, videos, you're getting about 10% of what the Jesus Lizard was because mm -hmm. you ain't sort of lived, especially not lived the Jesus Lizard until, you know, David Yao has been body surfing over your head, spitting and sweating on you, <laughs> you know. All I know is that life is good. going to be able to do are you going to be able to tour all bets are off in Europe and the states again are you uh, what are you hoping to do now that the world is slowly opening up yes I already have a European tour planned we're working on planning uh, our US tour so that's definitely something that I look forward to yeah and I hope to to next time I tour the states I hope to already record the next album are, are you going to go back to daptone it's a good question it's a good question You know, I that mean, guy Albini has a little studio here in Chicago <laughs> uh, where he talks about the joys of miking a drum set with one mic. And, it would be uh, a dream to record with Albini, actually. It would be, it would yeah. be a dream come true. Oh, you, you know, that's, he's got this attitude idea. of, I, I'm, a, I'm a plumber. If your pipe is broken, I'll come over and fix your... You know, I mean, he'll work with anybody. 
if you pay him. Yeah, I feel like it, you know. <laughs> he should do you for free, though. I saw I saw a lot of interviews with Albini. Um, so yeah, I mean, I know I have. A, yeah, you know, I, I ha- it's, it's it's like it's mix, I have this feeling. It's a mixed bag. He hasn't told me. I have, me, I have uh, a feeling that you know, if if I, it's like, yes, sir, yes, sir. You know, I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't see a no, sir, there. <laughs> well, you know, I, I and, you know, see, I, I I'm, I'm a you fan. working with him like like PJ Harvey. You know, I'm sure Polly Jean didn't take any crap from that guy, and I'm sure you'd put him in its place. And get I'm, the I'm a fan. You, you know, I will I will be starstruck. You know. Yeah, yeah. All bets are off, and I understand you came up with that title before the pandemic, but it seemed like it have extra special meaning now that we we've been through this. Prophetic in a sense of the way you approaching are are you approaching life now too? I don't know. You tell me. Good question. Yes, all bets are off. I named the album before the pandemic. It was meant to symbolize uncertainties in life in a way that, you know, deepens the the cognitive dissonance. One has, you know, for example, when you buy a washing machine and you're not sure you bought the best washing machine and you want to convince <laughs> yourself that the washing machine is, is good. So you start seeing this washing machine everywhere. Like you start seeing everyone buying this washing machine and, you, and it makes you feel like uh, you did the right, the right choice. And I mean, the name meant to represent the situation where you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And, and it definitely, it was very relevant during the pandemic when you have a small factor like a virus canceling all the former assumptions and changing reality. But on the same time, it also has an optimistic meaning because it means everything is open, right? It's like the name mm. has the word off in it, but actually you guys use it when you want to say that everything can happen. So you can't avoid drastic situations and changes in life. Life is about drastic changes and life is about having unpredictable things happen to you. And once you realize that, that life is not something that stays stable the whole time, I think it's easier to, to deal with it and cope with it. Yeah, learning to accept uh, the unexpected. Yes, exactly. You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss a sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply as time goes by We have been talking to Tamar Afek, uh, All Bets Are Off, fantastic album. Thank you so much, Tamar. Thank you so much for having me. That wraps up our conversation, and now we want to hear from you. Do you have any thoughts on Tamar Afek? Leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. And Jacques, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to do a deep dive into the Elephant Six Collective, Neutral Milk Hotel, Apples in Stereo, Olivia Tremor Control, with an author about a great new book about the collective. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed. We did love those bands, Greg, and the entire scene that produced them. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 